Yes, thank you, robot. Amazing. Okay, cool, cool, cool. How are you doing? How's the day? How's the day going? Oh, I'm good. It's, it feels like a spicy day. It feels like uh, I've seen spicy takes everywhere. I have felt my own. I have. I have internally lost myself within the spirit of the spicy take itself. Cool. Uh, I've seen the negative results of people's spicy takes, which has led me to immediately delete some things from Twitter. So we're doing we're doing good. It's a uh, Mercury is conjunct uh, Mars in Virgo today, so mm. there is a I would say an incisiveness to language, and people are perhaps particularly. Uh, good at articulating their criticism mm. which luckily i've been you know i haven't been uh, a, a direct part of or have experienced directly but it's interesting to see that the the people have been like posting their hot takes today yeah it's actually it's funny you mentioned that because i what i've noticed today is that there are just a lot of labor disputes unfolding mm. over twitter oh, interesting and um but one of the ones that's sort of been at the top of the list which is still unfolding at least as you know I've, I've started recording so if we use this in the episode people listening to this it's been a while maybe you know the end of the story and we don't yet but like um <laughs> the uh editor of current affairs magazine which is you know supposed to be like a big socialist magazine the editor wrote a book yeah. called Beep, like why be a socialist um just fired a bunch of staff who are trying wow. to turn the place into a co-op and oh we can't have that and the uh no, 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 no. and like there's at least one person who was doing a thread that was just like like here is our letter about it actually citing language that he has used and what that means so like actually doing the sort of like litigating the specifics of the diction in that moment um well, he's come oh yeah please go on no it, it's actually additionally fascinating to me that uh venus has just gone into libra too so we're working with uh an emphasis on fairness of balance of justice of coming of coming together in relationship and then there's something something to be said about the kind of cliche service orientation of virgo too right this is where we see mm -hmm. the essential workers oftentimes are within the virgoian uh auspice of like putting the well-being the service of the group of others before oneself and uh not prioritizing or centering uh, one's ego uh, mm. when it so we see a lot of social work implications like usually when there's big Virgo stuff going on uh, from a mundane astrology perspective you'll see you'll see increases in it's not as not always labor laws so I do I do think that that's a really interesting sync to with Jupiter retrograding back into Aquarius where we're going back to okay we haven't finished going through the arc of freedom here these mm -hmm. conversations aren't over we can't lounge into a year of Jupiter's sort of like ecstatic uh blissed out you know k-hole in Pisces we have to go back and we still have some shade some chains that need to be uh to be broken we still have some some issues that we need to speak out about before we can all go to the post delta rave that we dream of yeah, I'm, I just hope the the Pyramid Club is still around for Goth Night when when all this is over. That's really celebrating with some sad sidestepping dancing to Bauhaus. Yeah, I mean it's basically just the Charlie Brown dance, but you're dressed entirely in black. It's great. It's one of the most important things available to us in in these 
dying days of the end of the empire, or or one hopes. Who knows? Um, you gotta get the science things back, otherwise, how are you gonna flick them to hollowed hills? No, I just need to like I I. One of the things I miss about doing this as a radio show is when it was a radio show, I could play music. And now I just yeah. want to do like a big goth, you know, like a goth hour. Um, yeah, I demand the Sisters of Mercy soundtrack at any given time. In my head, it's already playing. So we we are pretty, we have Temple of Love give it, any given moment already uh, coursing through my own soundtrack, which makes me feel much more self-important about everything I say or I do. We, we invite the listener now to sync up <laughs> Sisters of Mercy with this podcast, much in the same way that people would do with The Wizard of Oz and Dark Side of the Moon. Though it's really just two audio, it, audio, it does that, it works with audio stuff. Like I, um, back when I, uh, like a, maybe 2016, I was, um, I was in the habit of listening to NPR and the uh, Francis Ford Coppola Dracula soundtrack at the same time. And just things normal people like to do. I, I mean, it, it worked very well, but that's just because we were descending into a particularly unpleasant time in, <laughs> in, in the course of human events. So, you know, like it was very apt in a way that perhaps was not fun. Um, we have so much to talk about. I am so excited that I, I, I have you on the have you on the thing. everyone and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host Cooper Wilhelm and I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with astrologer, necromancer, and saint of Saturn Sasha Ravage. It's a lovely chat which you just heard a little bit of but we we talked for a really long time back in August and I'm so excited to finally be able to bring you not only the full hour of conversation that is in this episode of the program but an additional half hour or so of conversation that will show up in the Patreon more or less right now. So if you're not already a member of the Patreon, rush on over, check it out, get even more Sasha. You may be wondering, why has there been such a delay? Well, I will tell you. I just finished my first semester of social work school, and it turns out uh, doing social work, grad school, takes up all of your time. Uh, A shocking revelation. Because uh, they do have you taking classes and then also doing field work. So you are essentially a social worker from not so much day one as like day 14. And so you're, you're doing a lot of you're doing a lot of stuff that kind of gets in the way of doing a podcast. But I'm glad to be able to finally have a moment to edit this and put it out. And it's going to be a new bright year for Witch Hassle. So I'm so glad you could be part of it. And before we get to it, so it's a great conversation about astrology, necromancy uh psychology a whole bunch of great stuff and something it reminded me of was a paper that i read this semester for social work school and i'm not going to dwell on it too hard but i think it might be of interest to the magic types out there it's a richard m billows relational variations of the container contained and it's basically billow expanding on a theory of wr bion about different kinds of interactions that can happen in a therapeutic setting but one of them kind of hit my my magic antenna as feeling a bit like a kind of glamour or a kind of enchantment. So I wanted to like take a moment, highlight that for you, so you could get a, a sense of it. So this this bit he starts talking about, um, and I'm going to quote 
uh, page 40 of the study or of the theoretical paper where he's talking about what he calls parasitic relations, which are essentially the kinds of interactions that can happen in a therapeutic setting where the patient or the therapist does not want to continue therapy, but also does not want to be the one to end therapy. So there's a sense in which there is an attempt to get the other person to end the therapy session on your behalf. And while this can be something that is very direct, we are told by Billow, it can also be so subtle as to not be immediately perceptible. So there's a sense, uh, he actually, and, and he talks about that with an extensive quote from Bion. So while I'm, I'm citing this paper, I am actually going to be reading now its quotation of specifically Bion's 1961 work, Experiences in Groups. The analyst feels that he is being manipulated so as to be playing a part, no matter how difficult to recognize, in somebody else's fantasy. The experience consists of two closely related phases. In the first, there is a feeling that whatever else one has done, one has certainly not given the correct interpretations. In the second, there is a sense of being a particular kind of person in a particular emotional situation. I believe the ability to shake oneself out of the numbing feeling of reality that is a concomitant of this state is the prime requisite of the analyst. So we have this sense here that one might find oneself being drafted into a role in someone else's narrative, that there is a sense of being consumed by the magic of another person. So very exciting idea to sort of look at how psychology deals with warding off a thing like this. And Billow gets into some ideas about how you get out of there. But uh, I just thought, you know, you might be interested in that. So check that out. Uh, that is Relational Variations of the Container Contained. If I can find a link where you can download it for free, I will put that in the show notes. But that having been done, let us continue the conversation with Sasha Ravage, who is wonderful. And I am so excited that I'm able to finally bring you this chat. And I guess the kind of thing that really interests me, though, is like relationships with spirits and relationships with spirits through the astrological lens, through the nativity, and more importantly, how we can use astrology to resource us or to, fa um, to create a foundation for relationships with spirits that aren't just astrological spirits. Like, yeah, sure, it can be argued that every single person is a child of, you know, a planet or two. Uh, and every sort of spirit would fall under the <laughs> the auspice uh, of some sort. Uh, you know, your 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 trickstery spirits might fall under you know the more mercur mercurial uh, banner. Or if you're working with the spirit that does predominantly love work, you might be thinking, okay, this is going to be under Venus. But I'm more interested in those spirits who are easier to connect with, that are always sort of around us, that we that we might encounter just through taking a walk through our own neighborhood and who are sort of an aggregate of, of our incarnate experience as spirits ourselves. Uh, that mm. just, we got to be corporeal this time around. We're, we're embodied. We got the little flesh suit happening that, that makes it a little bit harder to maybe see what's around us or sense what's around us. But if, if you look, and I, I usually refer to this as like scrying the nativity, um, if you if you're, you 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 really do see spirits emerge from the uh, the black mirror of of the natal chart. You see them speak to you 
and you can feel them. And obviously, this sounds probably pretty uh, uh, pretty audacious to say, um, but I do think that that when we allow ourselves to be open to being spoken to, a lot of astrologers would end up agreeing that the experience they have when they're sort of delineating and gazing uh, at the natal chart is is a conversation. Maybe not through language, maybe it's through image or feeling, but the chart communicates back. So in this in this sort of conception of the natal chart as being inspirited in this way, are these spirits, are we are we talking about spirits that are somehow related to the astrologer themselves in some way? Like this is sort of like, I don't want to say a familiar spirit, but like somebody who's sort of in the room with you, who's whispering some hints in the ear there. Or are we talking about spirits that in looking at the natal chart of a person, you can sort of see um, ancestral spirits or the spirits that are are tied to them through some kind of, not exactly destiny, but you know, like a, a an astrological predisposition perhaps to be um, um, accosted by or um, obsessed by, you know, some kind of, I, I'm, I'm kind of casting at the wall here a little bit, but like, I don't know, like you got a lot of Venus in your chart. Maybe plants are going to like, you know, they're, they're tree spirits that are just going to be all, all in your hair all the time. And so you can kind of see that the natal chart, like where, where, like where are these spirits coming from in the natal chart? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it actually, for me is both. So I have um, several, spirits who specifically uh, support me in, in this work that help and um, act something as like liaisons that engender trust with the, the natives uh, spirits and allows, I, um, I guess, a sense of safety or rapport. Because there are a lot of spirits that obviously don't want to be seen by a, a practitioner. And there are a lot that do. And sometimes you don't want to see the ones that want to be seen. Uh, and sometimes they're very loud and need to be gently asked to step to the side so that other spirits can be revealed or come forward or communicate some sort of message. Uh, I, I often find that there are many instances where spirits genuinely are very eager to be known to the, to the native. I've had certain instances where it was, I was really, I was just blocked. I was not supposed to see, it wasn't the time. It was very evident that the spirits only wanted to be seen, obviously, by the native. This totally happens, you know, but a lot of times there is um, a, a mutual seeking that's happening. And, and a lot of times when I bring this up to a client, they are, they know immediately. They've sent, they felt it, they've seen it. Uh, and it is a combination of ancestors. And I would, I would say in many ways, they all feel something like an ancestor, whether or not they are, are human ancestors is very different. One of my areas of, of specialization is on the more demonic uh, entities attached to nativities. So ancestral spirits that are maybe in human in nature, whether it's a certain weather spirit, whether it's a certain land spirit, whether it's a certain, it's uh water-related spirit, whether it's a certain animal-related spirit. These sort of figures, whether mythopoetic or mundane, that are attached to intergenerational lines that I find are actually very detectable quite often through what I coined the haunted houses 
the second, fourth, sixth, eighth, and twelfth house of the nativity with certain planetary delineations. Hmm. Um, and there, there's often uh, there's often something of like a balance between being able to identify perhaps which side of the ancestry is more stable and in which side the native was reborn from and sort of asking around i mean it, it, it it's it's eerie to me and i've done this now i've had the privilege of doing this for many generations of families so i've, I've done like great grandparents through great grandchildren's natal charts and it's really helped me start to track patterns and substantiate these intergenerational cycles and see that that you can absolutely track ancestral i call them curses or blessings right but they're really it's it's epigenetic trauma that trans that transmogrifies the dna into a, something of an internal familial haunting and that's what i focus on so i don't try to like read people's spiritual courts um i don't try to and i i have readings for identifying tutelary planets where i can support people in in developing a relationship for instance with one of the more uh magically dignified or how to or how to magic uh magically remediate certain ill-dignified or debilitated planets in the chart but i really am more interested in helping people understand who's around them who's trying to get their attention and that's one particular area of astrology that i work that it is necromantic because we're working with thought experience they're terrestrial they've walked the earth at some point they're attached to people they are not celestial they're not heaven and they're not uh connected to the spheres they're not connected to the planets but mm -hmm. they can be seen through the topography of the nativity so if you if you had someone you were a client who it was very clear that there was some kind of we can call this sort of a a familial curse but mm -hmm. We can understand this also as sort of an epigenetic trauma, something that is somehow passed down through the family. Yeah. Um, is the remediation that you might suggest for that something that would address the nature of the trauma directly in some way, or is it, or does it take almost the form more of like an exorcism, like this tape, like there's a there's a there's a daemon that is associated with this, and so we just need to get rid of them. Well, I have, yeah, that's actually a really great question. I have a, uh, a sort of triage process. If someone's situation is, and, and I'm, I'm really good at knowing when to refer out. That's like one of the things I'm very proud of is I won't take on work that I'm not confident and haven't divined on uh, to confirm that I am the right person or the, are capable of, of taking it on. In really acute situations where we're looking at hundreds of years of this being passed down, um, we're looking at exceptionally hungry ghosts working through in the nativity. I refer out, you know, I usually refer out to Langston Kahn in, uh, in particular for his incredible uh, ancestral healing work that he can do and, and the, the, the deepness and the, the nuance of the work that he can do and the compassion he has as a practitioner. Um, but if it's something that I'm getting... Uh, a lot of confidence around the native being able to predominantly do themselves or to be able to at least take on. Um, I try and walk them through the connection with some more stable ancestors who are capable of on the other side being able to 
sort of support or call in. Ideally, our dead take care of the, the elevated dead can take care of the unruly dead for us. That is often not the case. And this will show up a lot of times in the native. So there's like a, there's a, there's a, a multitude of ways that can look, that can look like a referral, like the first step for this is that you need to be in therapy, you know? And when we're dealing with really acute trauma, um, since I do have my background in counseling psychology, there, it's got to be a multi-tongued approach. So we want ancestral healing and elevation remediation. But the first thing that we often need in this sort of situation is really strong boundaries with ancestors. So that means that I, I really walk through folks around what, if they're coming to me at this point, they usually already have some sort of ancestor altar. And I really walk them through where, what's that location and what does it look like? What is on it? How do you interact with it? Um, how do you interact with the dead? These are people that are usually experiencing some level of ghost sickness too. And so trying to walk through some diagnostics around that to see if that is or isn't an issue. And my my goal is always to start off with making sure that the the person is safe themselves. Do you need us to have baths? Do you need to find someone who can do Olympia for you? Can you? Do you need a, a counselor and a therapist? Do you need a, a dietitian or or something? You know, like the different thing. We we can go through different, more practical ways of assessing the problem, but also really setting strong boundaries with the spirits and the ancestors. What kind of uh, banishing work do you have? What kind of grounding work do you have? What sort of protective work do you have? I usually. Um, have not received that many cases where someone was like in imminent danger from the traumatic wounding. It's more about the ways in which it is continuing to affect both their physical health through the form of chronic illness, in which case I do think you need spiritual and medical support. I'm not, I'm not, the, not the person that's ever going to tell you that, you know, through this, this one spiritual practice, you're going to cure your chronic illness you know yeah. that's not how it works but there's usually a connection there right um, yeah this this witch can cure diabetes using one weird trick doctors hate her yeah is that yeah, just exactly. no, if only, a, if, I mean, good. do those still <laughs> pop up on computers anymore maybe those those headlines don't exist anymore um i god i'm getting old amazing love it um <laughs> who the thunk sorry to interrupt uh but like um actually now that i have interrupted you actually i do have a question though because this this does speak to um, a relationship with ancestors that I think is not commonly discussed in the mainstream of the occult, which might yeah. be an oxymoron in its own way. Because I think a lot of times when people talk about ancestors, it's like it is just the positive. It is just ancestors are, um, you know, an army under the earth that is here to uplift you. Everything they did was leading to the telos of your existence, and and yeah. you know you just need to. You just need to call up that big phone book, going all the way back to the first uh, fish thing that walked out of the ocean. And and they're gonna they're gonna <laughs> help you get that job through their little just bubble. Just one region. giant hug, man. Just the they're all your exactly. Yeah, but it sounds well, like maybe I'm not. Envious of no, I'm really envious of people that have that experience, and that's not to say that I'm not absolutely grateful for the ancestors I do have. But I don't come from a background where there's a luxury of pretending in tranquility isn't a part of it, right? So. Um, working in with Roma Jewish Holocaust survivors, Slavic and Balkan displaced people, and there is, and then and then on the other side, you know, most of my my dad's side were dealing with with Irish, Scottish, British, some of which were over 
disappear on the Mayflower and who knows how responsible they themselves directly were for acts of colonization and imperialization, right? So I have conflict already within both branches of my family with each other in many ways. And obviously not all of my dad's side was able to, you know, come over on the Mayflower. A lot of them were poor Irish uh, traveler people and Scottish miners, Welsh miners. But nonetheless, there is a... I've talked about this before with with the amazing dear friend uh, Charles Porterfield, the professor, about, and we were actually thinking about uh, doing a more formal talk at some point about it, but about how dangerous it is, uh, how eviscerating it is when you try you try to remediate your Jewish ancestors, right? The wall, the screaming wall of pain, is the thing that we both talk about. Mm. Um, and for the most part, I can't, uh, it's not safe. Even with all the work that I am able to do with the dead, my own are not always safe for me because that level of pain and sickness is is too, is too deep. And that sounds like that's not the answer you're supposed to have, right? Like I, I already can feel the folks that are going <laughs> to reach out about saying that, but I think that... Um, whether it's an astrology, whether it's an ancestor, whether it's in anything, we do, we do folks a really big disservice when we don't talk about what's hard or ugly or painful or negative or bad about a thing. We set them up for failure. We set them up to feel like they're fucking it up because their ancestors aren't able to support them because they were all alcoholics. Like they were all uh, you know, survivors of intersectional traumas in other ways. We have this, it's like, it's just, it's not acceptable to talk about, about those things. I think because we don't want to dissuade people from doing ancestor work either. But I, I will say that I have a lot of significant difficulties working with my own. And it doesn't mean you ever get to stop. And it doesn't mean that they can't help and support you in certain ways. But it also means, you know, there are certain things certain really strong boundaries you have to have so that doesn't bleed in to you so those hungry mouths don't don't come to you to be filled when they're mouths that can't be sated how do you like if someone is i don't know they're coming from ancestral practice from the from the position of you know the the party line that like it's all friendship and butterflies and so on and they're they're worried about um you know, I, I, I struggle to think that there are people who, I feel like if it's, if you, if you don't know about your ancestors who are like, who went through some bad stuff or were very bad people themselves, it's just because the family doesn't talk about it as opposed to they don't exist. But um, if you've, if you've got someone who's like trying to, who's coming at this originally from just like um, sunshine and, and um, uh, beetle bugs, and they're worried about like, how do I make contact with the rest of the family, knowing that there might be a whole lot of knives and teeth and shouting. What do you recommend in terms of boundaries? Like, should someone go so far as to do like the full, I don't know, like Solomonic circle on the ground before dialing up grandma? Or is it, is it just a question of like, you know, bathe often, banish hard, etc.? Yeah, um, those are people that I would probably recommend keep an ancestor altar outside if possible. So the a place of, of working with the dead being kept outside of the house 
Oh. Uh, uh, very deliberately not inviting the dead in because we want, for me, this is not to say this is the right way. This is just the way I would do it is that I, when you are learning how to work in a therapeutic setting with clients, especially clients that are experiencing intermittent explosive or rage related symptoms are acutely psychotic um, and endorsing violent ideation, et cetera. You're taught to keep a physical boundary. You keep a desk between you. You keep a wall between you. You keep a, a something. There's some little, the symbolic gesture of a physical item, right? And it's not even about the physical item. It's about what it symbolically represents, which is some sort of barrier, some hmm. sort of protective barrier. Not only makes you uh, feel more safe or comfortable, but it is a subliminal signature to the other that, um, that you that there is a is a barrier that they can't they can't cross, and most folks are capable of flipping a, a table or a chair, right? But not as directly prone to subverting a symbol, and I think it's very much mirrored when we're working with tranquil spirits and the dead, and um or or even spirits that. Like if it isn't a person you would invite into your house, they sh it, you shouldn't let that spirit into your house, right? Like if, if they were a human and you wouldn't invite them over and inside, it's very likely that you should maybe find a different way and a different place to meet with them. Um, I've had folks with really, really unsettled Catholic dead and I tell them to just go talk to them at church. Like mm. uh, they're of, of, and it's not that it always needs to remain that way, but I, I, you know, I err on the side of, of perhaps too strong of boundaries or uh, playing it too safe. I found that to help me a lot, it's kept me out of, a, it's probably stopped me from having some very interesting experiences and adventures, but it certainly uh, allowed me a certain security that makes me feel more comfortable doing what I do. And I, 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 I keep that rule. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't work with the the difficult spirits, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have difficult friends. You just think about if this is someone that you want coming into your private space, if you want them knowing where you uh, live and are resting and vulnerable, right? And yeah. if, if or where your fine china and valuables are that, that could break or something if they got unruly. And if you are going to say no to the idea of that, then I, I wouldn't invite your ancestors like that into the house either. This is not su a super cool, uh, I think probably shared belief by many people, but it is one I have found particularly important um, for for folks that are going through a, a lot of difficulty with their ancestors. So if someone, I mean, because like I think there's a lot to be said for the idea of the ancestral altar and, you know, maintaining that kind of space. If you were, like, let's say you live in a, in a major American city and you don't have a lot of space that is not um, shared with the general populace outside yeah. of your home. Can an ancestral sort of connection be made at something very, you know, rudimentary so you can do it in a public place without drawing a great deal of attention? I mean, the church is one example, sure, but like, could you go to, I don't know, a park with a tea light? Is that sort of enough? Or does it need to still be like probably some kind of semi-permanent installation? somewhere i don't think it needs to be permanent um i say that as a person whose ancestors are predominantly nomadic not necessarily by choice but there was nothing very permanent for most of my at least my maternal side and my more distant ancestors right and if 
if we needed a stable place to be able to talk to our dead, there are whole swaths of people on this planet that would never be able to really develop relationships with their dead. So I'm a big believer in uh, you can talk to them anywhere. Certain places are certainly going to probably, you know, be easier uh, and have a stronger resonance. Usually the places uh, of worship or the cemetery right and that that share some sort of cultural uh or ethno-religious uh likeness but i've seen folks do amazing things with little travel ancestor altars too getting little boxes from michael's where they have like a family heirlooms um of import and things like a, a little vessel of water um a little candle or a match to represent fire and then bringing those things with them uh when they when they go out somewhere and where they are somewhere i think that uh i I sound it does sound cheesy i really do believe that uh earnesty like earnest and authentic desire to connect is a huge necessity in any sort of relationship building whether it's with corporeal or or incorporeal spirits and and i think that that will do infinitely more than having the most, you know, intricate, everything that your, you know, your grandfather ever owned in, you know, beautiful antique doily sort of uh, ancestor altar at home. I think that it's about a genuine desire to foster right relationship and rapport. And sometimes right relationship means you don't talk to someone for a while because you really need to establish uh, boundaries because it's interfering in your life. And sometimes right relationship means that you talk to them all the time. And all of those things look really different depending on the situation. And actually this this brings to mind, so we've talked a lot about ancestral debt, but in terms of just the dead generally, mm-hmm. What role does astrology sort of play in that kind of necromantic working? Do you like? Is it just a question of like I don't? I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out an idea because I want you to to knock it down out of the air. Like yeah. So, so you know, no kindness here, please. Uh, <laughs> but like, is it just like oh, I want to talk to this person? Let me do a synastry of my chart and their chart and see where we overlap, and then I'll like oh, we both got Venus, and so I'll use the Venus thing to be to be high or whatever. Like what? Where does that, where do those two things kind of come together? This uh, reminds me of the really great talk that uh, Dr. Jen Zart did at a speakeasy of the dead. Remember, you, I think you were there for that one? Yes, that was um, amazing. That was and, very lovely. Um, yeah, and I would, uh, I could not discuss that nearly as eloquently or technically as she did. Um, and I'm actually really like thinking and curious about this idea, right? So there's obvious, obvious signifiers for, and there's, there's planet, you know, we're, we're, for doing necromancy, everyone knows that this is like a Saturn, maybe secondary Mars thing. Sometimes it's Mercury and moon. Okay. never mind. Right. So this is a problem. Every planet, we can use every single planet as an access point in a certain way. And I think that usually Saturn is something of the gatekeeper to everything. And and that's just my personal um, Mm. Saturn proselytizing way of life. But it's, 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 it's interesting to think about, about this because someone who has done throughout her life synastry with every dead person that she has like fetishized uh me and just over and over again lord byron just to remind myself just to remind myself of our 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 similarities i again think it's about the feeling there more than the technique right Mm -hmm. Uh, 
if we if we are willing to see configurations transits aspects as doors opening in a haunted house that we may or may not choose to walk through at any given moment very clive barker style right very like who knows what's going to be here uh and what this and what's going to be in this this moment at this exact time and uh and which room shares what similarity that leads to what blah 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 that there's a it, it's hard sometimes it's hard sometimes to articulate because it's really very visual the way i experience but i i do think that we can slip away from tangible space and enter the liminal through the nativity and i think we can meet anything i think we can meet random dead i think we can meet mythological you know square, scare quote mythological creatures and, and beasts i think we can we can cavort with the gentry and we can speak with the jinn you know i think all of those things can be done through and not in everyone's chart and not in the same way right that's what's what's so unique about it is there's no no spider web is ever the same and i really do see the nativity as a, a very unique spider web spun by a very unique arachne who had a very a particular vision and bestowed particular blessings and particular difficulties and all of those attenuate themselves to a strange lifetime labyrinth that is going to on the outside and the inside engage with the menagerie of strange beasts and whether that's sort of world walking the nativity and seeing the ways in which different planets avail themselves to different secrets and different mysteries because you're Mars is in Scorpio and in, in the eighth house can, you know, and it's conjoined your Mercury. And that, that means very, something like something very special and different than someone that has their moon there, you know, uh, loosely co-present, but, you know, applying uh, to their Venus and all these things create totally different worlds with very different spirits that walk back and forth across these invisible little lines or these, these transit lines, these aspect lines throughout the chart and we'd be naive to think that we ourselves weren't were the only thing they were engaging with that they weren't just talking with each other and working together or against each other you know not everyone likes each other and that can happen with the nativity as far as i've seen too right when you get certain hard aspects between planets as well where we're, we're learning that maybe the uh paternal the paternal sides uh coyote spirit uh really doesn't get along with the maternal sides raven spirit or something right we see these we see uh and that's just like a particular example that i'm thinking of for for one client and it was it was very funny because i went back and they were like hey, what like you've never i've never told anyone that those are like heraldic animals within the nativity but they're there and the and, and you can see them if you are willing to enter the imaginal right and this kind of goes to that lacan idea with the real it's crazy making it's crazy making to learn a science and astrology is an art but it's a science and then try and you know volunteer that you see things that you're like oh and this, you know like it's you're that's that it sounds uh it sounds insane um and it it feels and saying that I don't say that with any stigma toward madness, right? I love madness. I love Lacan. I agree with Lacan that that's a, there's a greater truth in many of those things. Unfortunately, it's a harder a harder way to, to to negotiate the world because of the way the world values and and doesn't value certain things. But it it definitely feels it feels very scary 
when you allow yourself to enter the imaginal in this this context but it's been immensely rewarding and i guess the reason why i keep doing it is because people keep finding some some substantial accuracy and healing and value in it so i ultimately i guess you don't get to tell yourself you don't get to do a thing because it doesn't sound conventional if the people want you to do it because it's helping them in real ways so I'm, i mean that is sort of the interesting thing about especially the moment that the occult is happening within the larger as having within the larger culture now the idea that well it's still it's still insane uh, according to you know standard uh, conventions of what is sane and what is not sane, but now it can make money, so yeah. that's fine then. Um, which I think is more of a Foucault thing about. Um, I'm getting my French. Yeah, theory, capitalism. Except, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, not a, it's not insanity if you can make money off of it. Yeah, you know if you're good at something, never do it for free, as yeah. um, Foucault famously said. Uh, so. Actually, I, I had so the, the the thing that I wrote my note about um, at the very beginning of this interview, and I'm very glad that I that would come back to it because now I, I can kind of remember it. So, like the 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 sort of you described Vedic astrology as having this sort of totalizing potential that it just feels like it's a way of using astrology to talk about everything, to look at everything. Where does that sort of put you then in terms of the relationship between astrology and the Lacanian real? Like, are you are you getting closer to it? Is the veil thinning a little bit there or is it a way of even better evading the Lacanian real if i'm understanding the Lacanian real right because i have a lot of trouble with Lacan. i find him very difficult actually hey <laughs> you know a lot about Lacan. um for the for the kids at home who aren't familiar with um Jacques oh my Lacan, God. <laughs> who, who was he and why is he so hard why is he so hard okay well speaking about the well okay first and foremost uh Jacques Lacan, sweet, sweet baby boy, is a 20th century French post-structural psychoanalytic philosopher. Uh, he is, I think, one of the most important voices in the Freudian school since Freud. I would say the only other person who contends with him, in my opinion, wow. uh, is, is probably Melanie Klein, um, mm -hmm. the Empress of Hate, a great name for an uh, for an Aries astrologer who studied children's homicidal urges, right? That, be, that beats the hell out of Crowley's wickedest man in the world thing. The Empress of yeah, Hate right? so much Empress cooler, of Hate, more metal. Shorter, yeah, shorter, like, yeah, concise, clever. And Lacan is sort of uh, notoriously reviled for seeming too obtuse or... Uh, right, and this was everyone with Dalida too, right? They're like, why did you have to make it so hard? And why did you have to write about it in a way? I maintain that Lacan was always trying to write in a way that was enacting the literal thing he was talking about. And when we're working with pathology, when we're working with deep trauma, when we're working with madness, when we're working with this, the phallogocentric order of the other, right? Language as a symbolic order, as an organizing prison that separates us from, from the deep heaving ultimate totalizing desire for oneness right that's when we have the the the, mirror, the development of the mirror stage that he talks about about how when we the we're born we are the same as the mother we're the same as everything around us we know complete happiness joy oneness connection it's a state of animistic uh godhood right we are all powerful there's we are all one there's no me versus chair. It's all just 
just connection. And we have that bone memory that we have to live our whole lives with the memory that things could be different than they are. And that fucking sucks. Like it's, it's much better to have <laughs> never had any felt sense remember of what it was like to just be like blissed out and, and with no complaints. And then we get to um, a, a stage where we realize the mother exists, but we are also still the mother. And that's, that's really, that's fine. We're fine with that because we're, we and, and our mother or primary caregiver are the, that's all that matters in the world. And it's great. And we see it, but then we realize that there's a me, right? This is when the mirror is held up and the mirror is held up for Lacan by the father. And obviously this kind of relies the way it's written on a pretty like normative, right? Nuclear family system, which is more and more exposed as not being the case. So you can, you can really swap a lot of things out Someone always serves the father's role in this process, the person who introduces language and introduces you versus me. Mm -hmm. And that's where Lacan maintains that uh, all the problems of the world and of the psyche exist. And that's the veil that hides the real, is that the minute language is introduced to us, and he claims that this is often done by the father because the father is severing the relationship between the mother and and the child by being another person that the mother would love, right? Or is interacting with, perceived as a threat to that oneness, to that closeness. When we have this organizing principle of language, well, we have to use words to distinguish me versus you. We are hit with, with the world-swallowing grief of, of realizing individuality, of realizing that we aren't connected and that we aren't one, and that we will have to spend the entirety of our lives trying to use these very fallible, brittle things, words, to communicate what we once implicitly just understood and mm -hmm. felt and shared with the mother. So that creates a lack, a wound, this gaping maw in the center of our heart um, that, that Lacan refers to as the object petit a, as urge, right? This void, this void is needed, needs to be filled by the object petit a, the little other, where the autre, the mother uh, with the M in, parentheses and then capital O other represents the mother. We're always longing to return to that feeling of oneness and connection. How do we do it? Uh, we do it through sex, through drugs, through shopping, through fame, through popularity, through academia, through promotions at work, through whatever the fuck external little thing that for one moment, one fleeting moment, utilizing the uh, desire uh, versus drive mechanisms within us, we we arc toward insatiably trying to to fill this hole with these little things and for a moment we think that we are gonna now that we've gotten this thing we're gonna we're gonna feel it again we're gonna feel whole we're gonna feel happy we're gonna feel complete we're gonna feel connected and of course we never do right because there, there's no there's no going back and Everyone who, I, I still remember the first time I heard this, I fell in love with it. I was like, oh my God, something finally explains it, right? It just made so much sense to me. And everyone else in class was like, what the fuck? Like, why? Like, that's so depressing. But I think it's hugely liberating. I think it's entirely freeing because we do live in a culture which makes us feel wrong for not always being happy, for not yes. being satisfied with what we have. Like, capitalism works because 
of what Lacan was saying, right? Because of that object petite, uh, because we feel that through consumption, we're going to be happy or full. Like every every time I encounter some uh, some anti-capitalist who also wants to shit on Lacan, I'm like, you do you do realize this whole system of psychology is built around talking about the toxicities of like the capitalist and consumer impulses. But so, so we live in a society where, oh my God, I just, we lived in a society. We, Slowly we Joker dances down the stair. Uh, but so we, we're in the society that forces upon us this expectation that happiness is the baseline and occasionally we're allowed these little, you know, dips into to depression, but it needs to be short. It needs to be for an objectively good reason. Someone we love died. You know, we got heartbroken. We lost a job. And, you know, you're supposed to just bounce back from that, right? Which I, there's a whole other tangent that I could go into about Freud and the idea of the liminal drive and how difficult it is to withdraw that once we've deposited that bank token. But uh, returning to... To Lacan, he he really tries to impart that the baseline is is suffering. The baseline is longing, is yearning, is comparing ourselves to others, is trying things and failing to get back to this original state of connection. And if we allow ourselves to, instead of being like deeply depressed by that reality, really focus on the genuine moments of joy, of connection, of of real, of, of that real special type of love where there's no expectation in the moment other than a genuine appreciation for each other's company. For the way that we can choose to cultivate and create communities together, which might give us even more moments of, of support and a sense of connection. For the, for the accomplishments we have, where we see that even though we are perhaps under the, the, the burden of individuality, we are allowed some, some, mantle and confidence for what we've offered through that. But we focus on the fact that we are given these moments are special now. These moments of happiness are special. And we we don't have to expect that they exist forever because they can't. They can't. It's just not, it's not the way things are. And you know, Lacan was not the first person to make these observations. Stoic philosophy would never have existed if everything was great all the time, right? There would be no reason to be like chill with having no control. Uh, over anything if people were miserable and not about not being able to control things for millennia so who came first for you in terms of of being a kind of guiding principle Lacan or Saturn or am I not or should I not be tying those two together because I feel like there's a there's like a little there's a little dark string between the two of them now yeah, well there is and uh, I would say in particular in a in a in a very Aquarian way, right? If we looked at Saturn's Aquarius role as this Promethean figure um, who was w- willing to dismantle and and create this sort of anarchic state in order to do the right thing. I would not have made a connection until the past several years. My interest in Saturn, my obsession with Saturn is more recent. My obsession with Saturn has been the past couple of years. Okay. My orientation and interest toward Saturn with moon and Venus as the other two planets that have historically been in there uh, is about a decade old. My interest in Lacan is about 14 years old now. Though I really kicked off when I had a really incredible literary theory professor. I think they teach similar, they, they, they have an affection for the same people, right? The disenfranchised, the marginalized, the poor, the mad. 
especially the institutionalized mad and the mad that are further farther made mad through institutions there is a desire to understand how we are in uh, in this incarceral nature of of a world uh that whether it's language whether it's the asylum it doesn't really you know it doesn't really matter i think when you when you going back to your conversation about seeing the real i think that we should all endeavor to eavesdrops you know on the real to peek at it in little glimpses right so lacan says that when language is introduced to us in order to be a good a good person who peoples correctly and speaks the language and plays the rules and abides by this Rousseauian social contract um we create this this invisible but very powerful veil over the over our consciousness which separates the unconscious and the real right and i love to think of the real as as the other worlds of spirit a lot of times as much as they are our own unconscious right and how much our unconscious can serve as a access point to the other worlds we walk in in a more shape-shifting you know spirit flight kind of way but the idea is that if we were to allow that to come through we would not be able to function i think part of it has to do with the fact that lacan similar to freud who wrote a lot about this in civilization and his discontents when he was especially embittered during world war ii and good for good reason he had been ousted from austria at that point from vienna um due to being a jew and he was going to die alone uh in england being made fun of by virginia wolf you know from mouth cancer uh so i don't blame him for being bitter at that time i have yeah. a huge freud stand uh and and i will like every day someone wants to fight me about that and they can keep doing it i will uh but i will i will fight them about it i love him and young was not a good person either so uh is that, that who comes comes for you is, is it the young people who come for you for your freud they always want to come for me for that they don't realize how how innately spiritual freud was right and how what a because the translations of freud uh of freud's works it, when they first came to America through Bernays, through his uh, through his was his nephew, were were translated in a incredibly scientific way to try and le legitimize to the Americans the idea of psychiatry, uh, which was a very newfangled European uh, metaphysic, right? To American scientists at the time, you know, oh my God, this man's trying to talk about the uncon. This this may as well have been like the Kardecian spiritist movement to Americans and for you know in the scientific community the idea of psychiatry this was absurd and when Freud's talking talking about how psychiatry is a cure through love everyone's like what and that's what that's what how he defined it it was through genuine love for the least someone. American the, thing the, you can the, <laughs> yeah right everyone was like no 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 none of that Europe that continental hullabaloo right like who who is this uh this little uh Jewish man in Vienna trying to to humanize these these people right through talking to them through saying that god forbid it might have been some terrible trauma they endured as children that has led them to uh these these symptoms that were were punishing you know no 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 
you, no one liked it in Europe either. Like, are you going to say that the aristocracy might be being inappropriate with their children? That's not an like a problem with the bourgeois. That's that's what you know the proletariat do. There, so so no one liked Freud, right? <laughs> except for me, uh, except for me and like one professor I had in grad school who was also a huge Freud stan. She was a, she, she was a very, very, she's, I hope she's still alive. She's very special. She was very old uh, at the time, chain smoking, out lesbian, Jewish lesbian, and just Freudian expert. And uh, wow, she was, she was, absolute she hero. was uh, she's my favorite professor. Yeah, ab absolute hero, just hilarious. I'm learning um, as I start um, grad school that apparently the social work profession is still very enamored with Freud. They have not, they have not left him behind, which is um, reassuring, also very surprising. Yeah, that is, that's surprising to me, and I'm actually really glad to hear that. I'm actually, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. When you really look at the works, Freud is a, is a hugely humanizing person, and his, well... Of course, still problematic at the time. Stances on uh, women that had experienced sexual trauma and and people that identified as as gay bisexual was way more humanizing than Jung, who saw women and and gay people and people of color as not even humans. No, directly says so in a lot of his work. You know, he refers to them as is subhuman. Um, so and people don't people want to they're like ooh the red book and they want to make it seem like he was very mystical but they forget that 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 freud was a dreamer like freud freud was a mystic too freud's out here talking about how there's a part of the brain you can't see where where all these things exist and live you know like that's a, that that is a is a pretty spectacular thing to say and it and it Oh, for, like, okay, Jung got excited when he realized that certain phenomena happened with lights and synchronicity. Well, that's like great and cool, but I think that we need to see why for such a long time it was Jung who studied, who studied under Freud. And I think that there are new translations of a lot of his work that recently came out, which are much more true to the poetic nature and, and even to the fact that Freud deliberately chose the term psychiatry, right? Uh, to name it after psyche, which, which means and represented the soul, the spirit, because he thought that, that the, the, the cure through love was about addressing the person's soul and their spirit, not some organ in their head. That's why it was so controversial in, uh, in, to be, you know, a, a studying neurology uh, and trying to be a medical doctor and talking about the soul and talking about the spirit and talking about uh, spiritual emergency in, in, in individuals and being able to create beautiful patterns through uh, and connections through pathology. We really found spiritual, spirit, like spiritually enlivening connections through pathological symptoms. That was always his way in and the emphasis on analyzing dreams and, you know, I wish I wish people would would like get over the fact that the dude did cocaine Half the people you know, any given Friday night, doing doing cocaine. Why why is it better for you to do it at the club than it was for him to do it while he was writing uh, his books? Right, like so. Th there's a lot of there's a lot of weird judgment calls that seem strangely hypocritical from millennials. <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, not to come full Capricorn at this, but I mean, at least he was doing cocaine and getting work done, you know. Yeah. All these all these young people doing it in bathrooms it just work. to dance. Come on, guys. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, Freud was the one out there writing about how uh, it was it was the only thing that would really help these hysterical women was if they were to be able to be open about the very real sexual traumas they had experienced at the hands of, of rich men in society. That's a, that's a, that's a huge statement for, for, for anyone to make. There, it's definitely more than most of your local bands are making, you know, like, yeah. so I think that we, we need to, to, I'm all, I'm all for conscious, intentional criticism of the ways in which any of our heroes, idols, forefathers, founders, or uh, thinkers, right, were problematic, were harmful, et cetera. There are definitely ways, and then I, I would not argue that. But we need to also look at the full picture and not just cherry pick the things that we want to react to and still take the things that we want. And Freud has studied much more, I would say, um, seriously in in almost every liberal arts field that isn't looking at psychiatry or psychology. Freud's everywhere if you're studying anthropology, if you're studying uh, literature and writing, etc. He's stuck there, um, but people, people found it was unprofitable to blame parents for doing things wrong at a certain point. Oh boy, that's, the, that's, that's a much better take on that thing, because my, my, my sort of knee-jerk reaction to the rejection of Freud and sort of psychology per se seems to be have more to do with like a, a deep-rooted insecurity that they that they want to be like a quantifiable science and so they have to get rid of things that you can't but you can't quantify the unconscious you can't no you can't you can't find it with an MRI or if you do like it doesn't really mean anything um actually so there's something you say on your on your website that I wanted to bring up um yeah. and, and I realize you've been doing this for like an hour and a half so if you have to go at oh, any no, point, good. give me a give me a tap on the shoulder. Well, not yeah. a, you know some equivalent of that, given that you are very far away. Um, <laughs> I mean, you could ask project uh, to tap me, but like um, you mentioned on your website, do I have the exact quote? Please tell me I do. Uh, yes, um, that you. Um, I mean, you're you're formally trained in counseling, and you're very very knowledgeable, and it's very clear how how these things could inform. I think your astrological practice, especially given that um, I believe Lacan was quoted as saying that uh, astrology was a sort of erotic technique, which is a great, yeah. a great quote. Um, but you say that on your website that you've a, you've eschewed licensure because you want to avoid, quote, the requisite diagnosing machine of insurance companies. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. How do you feel about, about is that just a question about the troubles that come with insurance companies or are you or is that really to do with the idea of like diagnosis as a kind of as a kind of potential harm it it's a little bit of both i it's a i i had a uh, it was in my laws and ethics of and this was in california i was a student at california institute of integral studies um and there was a we had our our, our requisite you know laws and ethics of what it means to be like what a, a counselor in the state of California, et cetera. And that was where they're really asking us, you know, to think about whether or not we wanted to, whether we, whether we were going to take insurance or not. Right. And, and 
the automatic instinct for me was, of course, I want to take insurance. It makes it more financially solvable uh, for, for clients. And then we started learning about what it meant to work with and through the insurance companies, especially at that point, it was Medi-Cal that, that we were looking at. And at that point, uh, before I entered this graduate program, I had worked uh, for many years as a, uh, well, many, many years, five, five years, five and a half, six, uh, at, at a nonprofit a nonprofit organization in San Francisco that worked with unhoused unhoused individuals that were uh, diagnosed concurrently for substance use and for for mental illness. Most often, we were looking at psychotic disorder stuff uh, that was induced by like methamphetamine, and and, it, and we were uh, sort of like a reentry. A di- it's a, di- a diversion from from the hospitals, essentially. That would ideally uh be able to give in the first program i worked with for four years it was a crisis services program so we had up to two weeks to sort of help engage clients with the daily living skills they would need in order to re-enter uh the community and whether that's in a shelter whether it was in a single room occupancy whether however if they got into a longer term program and to be able to take care of themselves etc and and our part of our responsibility was to, to do daily billable notes to medical and the programs don't get run right unless unless medical is being billed and you can't bill medical unless there's something to write about and I started to become very aware of the consequences, maybe to to being accountable to a system that only wants to help pay for a thing when it's the worst case scenario possible, right? Mm-hmm. And I started becoming a little too jaded around how money plays a role in the profit of symptom acuity and that you can get more funding the more acute clients are and similarly from what was being discussed in my class that if you're working with at least on paper more severe diagnoses insurance companies will be required to pay for more sessions but if you're working with someone that is you know like a general ongoing mild dysphoric depression or ongoing uh, but very high functioning like anxiety related stuff or um, PTSD they fund very little of it and I it's still a a choice I grapple with this they already made the decision you know and I'm not I'm not going to go back I'm not going to get licensed I've I've decided that because I also decided I didn't want to be a conventional therapist at that point I was more interested in utilizing all of the skills that I cultivated in graduate school in order to supplement a more spiritual uh and astrological approach to understanding it and at least now I had skills that made me more equipped to work with folks that are experiencing an intersection of of difficulty of stress intention but i didn't want to ever have to diagnose someone so that i would get paid yeah um i didn't ever want to diagnose someone so that have to diagnose someone so that they will get paid you don't get away from it like your those diagnoses last especially if you're working with adults um mm. and i grew up with a lot of folks that were in and out of psychiatric institutions as teenagers right 
Um, and I saw, I saw what diagnoses do. And I, as someone who received a PTSD di diagnosis myself and received an ADHD diagnosis when I was 13, um, I knew how much I, my, my identity grew around the diagnoses instead of in spite of them yeah. for a very long time. And I just, I thought about if I could do it, even be, even because I thought it would be great to be more financially responsible. And I just realized I would rather not do a thing than do a thing that made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So um, that's ultimately the decision I made. I don't even know if it was necessarily the, the right decision in the long, long shot, but I, I was sitting there in that classroom and I was already really burnt out um, and frustrated with how superficial the idea of spirituality was in, in, a, in a transpersonal and integral counseling program. And I was frustrated by having to play by the rules of the insurance company because I was already burnt out from a from my prior job as doing the social work before that. Yeah. Um, so that's why I ended up I ended up making that choice. And I find the right the right clients end up coming to me every single time, regardless. And I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. Had yeah. a lot of success. Yeah, I mean, I feel like your your practice really has this this all encompassing nature that allows you to pull so many things together in such a wonderful way that I, I don't think would have been available to you if you'd entered more sort of you know mainstream insurance uh paid for counseling thank you so much to sasha for such a wonderful conversation if you want to check out sasha and see more about what she's doing what she's up to you should go to sasharavich.com there's also a bunch of other places you can go and i will put links to those in the show notes i'll also put links to the zine of protective magic that is free that she put together that she curated from a bunch of who's who of the magical world and if you want to hear more about that zine and also if you want to hear more about how sasha built her relationship with the planet saturn and what that did for her you should check out the other part of this conversation which is on the patreon right now at patreon.com slash witch hassle check that out uh, thank you so much for listening to Witch Hassle. Our theme music was performed by Sebastian Baverstam and recorded by Edward Lee. Good luck with the work ahead.